Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Tyvel, and I work with Peace Catalyst International, normally in the Washington, D.C. area, and I'm currently joining you all from Pretoria, South Africa, actually, um, where I'm working remotely and hopefully engaging in peace building locally as well. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Allie Bernison. I'm Allie Bernison, and I am in the LA area doing peace building work here, and I wish I was in South Africa. <laughs> by the way, if you enjoy the Peace Catalyst podcast, please do us a favor and take some time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps boost our visibility and encourages others to give us a listen. Yeah, thank you guys for doing that. And Ali, I wish you could also be in South Africa because it's amazing so far, but you're it's really important that you are in LA because you have a really cool event coming up, which is Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> I have an event on Sunday, um, which by the time you're listening to this, probably it will be over and hopefully it went successfully. Um, but one of our partners with uh, PCI, Dr. Salim Munir from uh, Israel Palestine, is coming from Jerusalem and he's speaking here in Pasadena, California on reconciliation efforts in Israel Palestine. He's had years and years of experience doing this kind of work. So he is basically just going to take some time to share what he's learned and the the model of reconciliation that he uses, um, challenges, successes, um, you know, all of the, a little bit of the context working in Israel-Palestine um, for peace between Israelis and Palestinians on the ground. Um, and, you know, I just, yeah, I hope people can take something away from the experience as well as, you know, connecting with each other and kind of getting to know each other better. Um, but but take away, you know, that in if relationship can be built and some sort of reconciliation be achieved, um, even though it's like, you know, a long process with a lot of hard work in Israel-Palestine, which I think is like a conflict that we think of as so intractable, where there's absolutely no hope for peace or reconciliation, whatever that means, then like, can't it happen here in our own country in our own context, in our own communities, families, you know, across political divides, as we're going to be talking about in this episode. So, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of my hope for the event. But yeah, yeah. that sounds amazing. And yeah, I really wish I could attend it um, in person. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, Dr. Salim Munayer is so inspirational. And I think, like you're saying, there's so much power in that people-to-people -people peacemaking and reconciliation yeah. like at the relational level is really crucial. Um, yeah, and such a beautiful thing. And you actually spoke to him on this podcast before I was part of the podcast. So if you haven't listened to that episode, you definitely should. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great idea to listen to that episode because he kind of gives the whole model mm -hmm. of reconciliation that they use. So, um, you know, every episode we've been sharing peace quotes and our peace quote this episode is from the late Representative John Lewis. It says, democracy is not a state. 
It is an act, and each generation must do its part to help build what we call the beloved community, a nation and world society at peace with itself. And as part of our um, Becoming the Beloved Community series, Restoration and Healing in the Midst of Division is very relevant to that concept of reconciling people who are in um, entrenched divisions. Um, And, you know, basically the concept of this series is rooted in the historical origin of the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr. Um, And so we're kind of framing our conversations around that. And we're talking to people whom we call peace builders who are involving themselves in the ministry of reconciliation, who are interrupting and challenging oppression, and ultimately holding firmly to a vision of justice, restoration, peace, and healing for all members of a community. So this week, we're continuing the series with an interview with Julie Ethan. And Julie is an author, a speaker, a peacemaker, someone who's pursuing conflict resolution through the power of story. Julie grew up in Minnesota, where she eventually got married and grew her family. And she and her husband eventually formed friendships with political opposites there in Minnesota. And through these friendships, she learned the power of empathy and connecting with those who think and believe differently from ourselves. She gives us a full account of what this process of building these friendships looked like in her book, How Can Half the Country Be So Stupid? A Memoir and Guide to Friendship Between Political Opposites. Julie has a master's in peace and justice studies from the University of San Diego, and she and her husband, Larry, currently live in San Diego. I can't wait to talk to her. Hello, Julie. I am so excited to have this conversation with you. Would you mind, just to get us started, introducing yourself to our audience, sharing um, a bit about who you are, where you're coming from, and yeah, we'll just start the conversation there. Sure. Thank you, Allie. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, So I became very interested in the polarization of our politics probably back in 2012. And it had been sort of a part of my learning journey. At midlife, I went back to school and got a master's degree in peace and justice studies from the University of San Diego. And then um, started to figure out how to pair all of those conflict resolution skills with the political landscape, which just kept honestly, in my opinion, ramping up and getting worse, you know, from 2012 forward. And whenever the pandemic hit and I was unemployed, I had the opportunity to write um, a small memoir about my friendship with a political opposite and try to bring some of those conflict resolution principles to life through story. And hopefully the story would touch people and they would get ideas on how they could deal with their family and friends, because that just seems to be a big issue these days, you know, the whole, it's become kind of cliche about Thanksgiving, (laughs) you know, but gathering with family that has different opinions. So that's kind of a background. Right, right. So, um, yeah, no, you're so right. It has become a cliche of like SNL skits every year (laughs) about Thanksgiving. Um, 
and all of the drama that can ensue. So, uh, so you wrote this memoir, which is called how can half the country be so stupid? Exactly. Right. Um, and yeah, would you mind describing that, that relationship that you reflect upon, um, in the book? Who, who were these people who you found were your, uh, were your political opposites? And, um, yeah, if you would mind sharing a bit about that. Sure. So most of my young adult life was spent in evangelical circles. We were conservative, um, politically, a lot of that was you know, centered around the pro-life issue, which I think a lot of people can relate to that. Um, But our dear friends, Beth and Benjamin, um, they were a mixed race couple. Benjamin was black um, and my husband and I are both white. And we uh, would get together and hang out and have such a good time. But the interesting thing is, is that what was going on in our sort of separate lives from our friendship was was very, very different. For example, Benjamin and Beth were involved in democratic politics. Um, Benjamin was involved in a lot of civil rights activities. And Larry and I were involved in church and possibly teaching Sunday school to kids or this and that kind of thing. And so it wasn't really until uh, I went back to school in 2010 to actually a conservative university in Minnesota, Bethel University, that I started to learn about, you know, worldviews and differences in worldviews. And then we had an assignment. And that's what's so cool about your series on the beloved community is that we had an assignment to read Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail which I had never read in my life. And here I am 45 years old reading this for the first time. And I think what it did for me is that he's very vivid in the letter when, when he describes, for example, what it feels like to be a parent who has to tell their child who sees a commercial on TV about an amusement park that they can't go to the amusement park because of the color of their skin. And I I am the mother of five children. Uh, That hit me really hard. I think it brought the reality of the civil rights struggle just right into my living room, right right in front of my face, because I just grew up in fairly white Minnesota and really didn't know a lot about the whole civil rights struggle or the Jim Crow laws or any of that. So when I read that letter, (laughs) and and this is in the book, I immediately called Benjamin and I'm like, Benjamin, I just read the letter from a Birmingham jail. And I just want you to know that from now on, I am going to march by your side at the Martin Luther King um, parade uh, on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And he was just really calm. He's like, sounds good. You know, as a matter of fact, I'll get us uh, tickets to the breakfast. And was a turning point I have to say from that point forward just it's sort of like well now these days we call it being woke but you know it really was an awakening it was like finally seeing something that a I had very little information on so I think sometimes we have to forgive people because they just don't have the information but b I could relate to because I was a parent and it it just it touched my heart you know Mm. So that was the sort of the um, 
the kickoff to a new turn in the relationship where we started sort of sharing um, a little bit more about politics with each other. And one day Benjamin asked me, do you think there's anything that we could agree on uh, politically? And I said, well, that's interesting. So we started sort of going through a list of things. And something that we both ended up agreeing on was that the immigration problem in the United States was, was a mess and something needed to be done about it, you know, and I was coming at it as a small employer, uh, dealing with, um, undocumented people wanting jobs and morally, how was I supposed to deal with that? And then he was coming at it from more of a big union perspective and, you know, the fact that they knew something needed to be done about immigration. And so that sort of became a connecting uh, point for us. And, and then it just kind of moved forward from there. And I just feel like I just started to educate myself more on the issues. Wow. Wow. That I, I thank you so much for sharing that. I think, yeah, you highlight something that I've experienced myself in a different context with just recognizing um, the need in my own personal burden for interfaith relationship building and collaboration um, and how that all began for me with a personal encounter and a friendship um, with a Muslim boy. And so I think, yeah, I think your, your ability to connect the words in the letter that you're reading, um, you know, so many years apart from when the letter was written and it's touching you in this moment, you know, and you're connecting it to your experience with your kids and it becomes personal and how that, like how, how that experience shifts your disposition towards, you know, a whole host of issues and transforms your relationship. Um, that, yeah, that is just so interesting to me. And I mean, anecdotally, I feel like that's how it happens for many people. A shift in mindset comes through an experience, a relationship when it becomes personal. Um, so, yeah, thank I you. Agree. I think as peacemakers, we often want to see a big shift. We want to have a big impact and a whole bunch of people change their minds all at once. But in reality, it's just like those one-on-one, you know, small relationships that change uh, people and honestly, my transformation to to being willing to look more and more at the liberal side of politics probably took ten years of that relationship. So a lot of people think, oh, that's too long. That's not worth it. But I mean, is it? Because everything is like a ripple effect, you know? Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you're so right about wanting big transformative change, but it all it always starts small. Yeah. Um, so many, so many questions are coming up. So many things that I'm, I want to talk about more. Um, but I think first of all, just to, just to back up and look at, um, our country and and where we find ourselves now. And, um, you know, you, you said at the beginning that you kind of began in 2012 and you were already noticing, you know, this increasing divide between two very polarized, um, Americas, honestly, so if you, if you wouldn't mind from your perspective, like how, how have we gotten here? How did we get to where we are now where, um, you know, where communities are fairly insular and it feels like there are only, you know, there are just two groups and like, where's the middle? Um, 
yeah, which may or may not be true, but uh, yeah, where, how do you think we got here? Wherever here is from your perspective. Wherever, right. I just think it's so embedded in human nature to divide ourselves into sides. I think uh, the us versus them mentality is a framework that we are clearly born into. I, I mean, if we want to even take a shot at, at organized religion, you know, what, what my own religion taught me when I was growing up as a Catholic was that we were the ones that probably had a ticket into heaven and everyone else probably didn't, you know, um, or there was a, a waiting place for them or things like that. So we immediately start out with these notions of, you know, there's, there's some people that have it right. And then there's some people that have it wrong. And I think what happens with politics has a lot to do with, I mean, it, the divide was always there. I just don't think it was quite as vicious. I think the viciousness possibly came from mass communication, new technology, you know, Facebook opening up to adults in 2009 or whatever year. Um, because you can definitely see that it was ramping up through the 2000s. Um, it, or at least it felt closer to home for a lot of us. And, you know, then it just came to the point where it's like, well, choose your side. You know, well, what's my side? Well, you know, how about this? You know, and, and then as long as it's sort of aligned with something we wanted to believe, it, you know, it became true. <laughs> I, I guess that's where I would start is this whole notion of us versus them. Um, and then taking that a little further into, into um, the, the, the conservative side that I was a part of uh, wanted the government to do certain things, but then not do certain other things. So we, we saw the government as some, some entity that if as long as it aided the market, and capitalism, then it was okay, and then protected us from outside forces. Um, the other side saw the government's role as much much larger and much more foundational in providing, you know, education for the masses and, you know, safety nets and, for poverty and also, you know, environmental things. So what I began to see is that interestingly in the conservative tribe or group they included we didn't we didn't even see wealthy people as anything other than us they weren't the one percent we saw wealthy people as in in our group and we also saw corporations in our group because those corporations provided our jobs the liberal side saw you know people in their group but not you know the wealthy or the corporations but they more saw the government as in their tribe in a sense mm. and so the you know then the media was able to take those 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 divisions and who we see as our in-group or our tribe and then just really exploit them and get people really angry at each other um right. <laughs> and 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 then and it just exploded from there i mean i don't i don't know about you 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 know you you're probably um a decade or two or three younger than me, but like, 
what was it like for you growing up in the in the 2000s you know did you see a ramping up of division yeah um it's so i am 26 so i was born in 1995 so i feel like perhaps when things were beginning to ramp up um i was you know fairly young and not super engaged in these kinds of conversations i would kind of go silent around the dinner table but i do remember that um so i grew up in on the gulf coast of mississippi and I went to a Southern Baptist church um, and my family leans conservative for sure. There has been some movement with various people. Um, but at that time, I do remember thinking or, or it just it was clear to me at that time that there is a right way to think and there is a wrong way to think. And um I, you know, even though I didn't have much to contribute in conversation when, you know, various family members were kind of like bashing a concept, the concept of a big government and how, you know, that's, as you're talking about, it's like not the government's role. They, they do these things and not those things. And that's like, this is, this is the right perspective. And not only is it the right perspective, but it was tied, it, arguments were very much tied to faith and tied to like religious convictions which then I think makes it even more hairy to think for yourself as you're growing up, if you're, you know, kind of forming, forming your own faith, but also it's very much attached to your family's faith and expression of, um, for me, Christianity, um, evangelicalism, well, Southern Baptist. Yeah. But, um, so I think it becomes even more difficult to begin to think about like political issues if, yeah, if you're raised to see believing certain things as very much tied to like a right expression of faith. Um, so yeah, so I would say it wasn't until I came out to California for college that I began to see kind of an, another perspective that could also um, that could also be like an authentically Christian perspective. Um, so yeah, I, I think growing up, it, it was, it was very confusing. Um, yeah, it's very confusing. Well, it was really turbulent times to be growing up. I mean, it was, you know, nine 11, you know, occurs, you're still young, but it shakes up the whole country. And then the huge recession, you know, and that disrupted a lot of families' lives. A lot of people lost their homes, you know, and now here we are with a giant pandemic that does not seem to want to go away. Um, and those are, those are the types of crises where people start to draw lines. And you know what? My, I had a, a beautiful Southern Baptist older cousin that used to say that bad things can either make you bitter or better. Mm. And I think a lot of us have allowed ourselves to go to the bitter, you know, in, in some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and, and we sort of do have to reimagine what would the better look like? Because it's super easy to say, let's all be kumbaya. Let's take care of the poor. As long as we all are in the same faith community and we're all believing the same thing, you know, but 
a democracy is not that. It is an experiment in bringing together very diverse groups of people with very different beliefs. And can we govern all of them and make it work? And I think that, you know, that is the big challenge that we're facing right now is, you know, we either prove that we can make democracy work or we go back into our little tribes, you know, and uh, wall ourselves off from everyone else. And I don't really think that we want to do that. I think we have a bigger curiosity Right. You know, we have a bigger love. We have a bigger love. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you're bringing up this concept of tribes, which I would love to dive into a little deeper. Um, in your book, if I can just quote, um, you say, and yet tribes still manage to have good relations, build alliances, and share resources. We must not forget that throughout history, tribes have depended on each other to thrive. And that, those lines just stuck out to me because I I think it gets to what you were just saying, you know, that we, the concept of mutual flourishing and we, um, we, we do depend on each other, even if we're coming from different worldviews and perspectives. Um, but backing up a bit, what, what exactly do you mean when you, when you talk about the concept of tribes and, um, yeah, we'll start there. Yeah. Well, in, in the book I was, you know, I was clearly, saying that we have the two tribes, the, I'm going to call them the blue team, which is the liberal side and the, and the red team, which is the conservative side. So mostly focusing on that form of tr- political tribalism. Um, the quote about how tribes can cooperate, honestly, that came from Benjamin. Uh, he contributed those thoughts. Um, so I have to give him credit for mm-hmm. that. But I will say, in addition, that when I was at the University of San Diego studying basically war, <laughs> we called it peace and justice, but we were really dissecting wars. Huh. Um, some, one of the big takeaways from that study was that we don't go to war with people we trade with. So our country is not at war with trade partners. We trade, I think... Mexico is our biggest trade partner. Um, clearly, the European Union countries. Um, you don't see us going to war with France or Great Britain, or you know. Um, and so, right there, that sort of lets you know that establishing some sort of, maybe you could call it an economic bridge or link, um, hmm. is is one step in in creating conditions where we're at least going to try to figure out how to work things out because now we are trading with each other. Um, so I don't know if that brings some clarity, you know, to the thought there, but it's, it's something that we could build on maybe, you know, in, in terms of thinking of political Mm -hmm. tribalism. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That is a helpful framework. Um, so do you think that, with our, our natural instinct to, um, team up with, well, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but to, to kind of team up with a group of like-minded individuals, um, to kind of find, um, yeah, to find, to find a home in those places. If that's kind of what we're naturally inclined to do, um, you, you also mention in the book that we, 
working within these tribes, we can either, you know, kind of cooperate and build bridges or we can um, kind of burn them, I guess. Do you think that, you know, from your perspective that are, that we are more inclined to do one rather than the other? Um, and I guess that question is kind of more like psychological, but um, admit, or maybe it depends on, you know, context and environment. I think maybe right now when they're is a bit of fear and anxiety surrounding, I mean, pick an issue, you know, with the pandemic, like maybe in those, that kind of context or environment, we're more likely to cling to our tribes. And then we don't necessarily want to build bridges. We're more inclined to like, you know, burn them, but I don't know. Yeah. What, mm-hmm. what do you think? Yeah. Well, in terms of like, are we, what are we more naturally inclined to do? I mean, I think it's kind of obvious to all, all of us we're naturally inclined to feel more comfortable in our own social bubble. And, but what I have seen that will jar people out of those bubbles is a lot of times a crisis, but something where they have to come together. So let's say some, let's say a tornado comes through your community and you put have to pull together a soup kitchen and supplies for everyone you're going to end up having conservatives liberals everyone working together for one common cause um and i think maybe we need to manufacture more situations where we bring everyone together Mm. um to do some good because i think that the moment you get in a room where you actually start talking to someone who maybe has opposite beliefs, but, it, but you're doing something, you know, in love and you're, and you're trying to, you know, execute this, this plan or whatever, it, it brings forward that opportunity to actually listen and hear what they have to say and try to understand where they're coming from. And maybe you don't agree with their approach, but you might find out, And I talk a lot about this kind of thing in the book. Like if you're a listener, if you can get really curious, you'll find out that you probably share a common value with that person, you know, like um, maybe just a caregiving charitable vibe when something goes wrong, or maybe you share the vibe of, of fairness or whatever, but you know, you can find a value usually that you actually share with that person. You just have two completely different ways of getting to the end point. <laughs> right, right. That is such yeah, that is such a good suggestion though. Listening for for what what values are kind of underlying the statements and seeing if there's some common ground there. Um and yeah, now now that we're kind of moving into the practical and just thinking about, you know, I'm thinking about relationships in my life where I know the divide is great <laughs> between perspectives. Um so I know in the past, you've utilized your own experience and studies to kind of help people within your own community um, through political counseling to kind of help, um, you know, maybe provide tools and support for people who are in relationship with someone who's a political opposite. Um, so I, I want to hear about your experience there. Um, but then, yeah, also just kind of generally, like, is this always, is it always possible to build bridges with someone who's on the other side of the spectrum? Or, I mean, does it, does it require, um, does it require both parties 
a certain level of willingness from both parties or, or do you think it's most often possible to um, come to some sort of, and I don't even know how you would, how you would qualify or describe what you're aiming towards, what the goal is, but I guess if it's, if it's consensus or I don't know how you would say it in your language, but um, is it always possible? And also, can you describe the political counseling? (laughs) Sure. Um, I started out in 2017 with, after the election of, of uh, Donald Trump with the opportunity to facilitate some workshops or learn how to facilitate some workshops through the braver angels organization. And I highly recommend everyone look at, look into braver angels. Their main mission is to depolarize America and they do it in a very sort of marriage and family counseling methodology. And so I, I started out um, giving those workshops, which is where I learned a lot of the tools you know, and then from there, ended up writing the book and doing some one-on-one um, counseling with people. It's more like a counseling in terms of uh, um, conflict management. But like more to your point, like do both people have to be willing to sort of engage in the tools of of this if they're on opposite sides? I mean, I would say that in reality, in most cases, we can we are confronted with a family member or a friend that has different beliefs and, and it's just in the moment, you know, you're not like sitting down to have some, like, let's have an agreement about trying to work through this issue together. And here's the tools we're going to use, you know? So I think it just starts with those encounters. The biggest, most counterintuitive thing that you can do is just take a deep breath and take a step back and not immediately respond to what they're saying with your own correction or debatable point and instead respond with another question. Mm. Um, Ask them to go a little deeper so that it gives you time to listen, to practice that curiosity and, and sort of to like, instead of building your debate in your mind, you can take that step back and, and be thinking, now, I might not agree with what they're saying, but what am I hearing values-wise? Where might we share something? And then, you know, at the end of what they say, you might say, well, it sounds like we both care about this situation, about immigrants, or we both care about women. Um, But I just take a different approach, you know? And then you can take that a step further is, are you interested in hearing my thoughts? Uh, and see if they are, you know, sometimes we don't ask permission, you know, we just blast people with what we think, but that's because all of these things, like I said, are very counterintuitive to our natural reactions and they do take practice. Mm. (laughs) Um, and then the other thing is just recognizing when you just really need to drop the conversation, walk away from the, the point, the talking points. Um, you can always tell when things are escalating for someone and they're not gonna be able to listen and just use a little humor. Um, Mm. you know, well, we're not going to solve that problem today, are we? And then change the topic, you know? Mm. So that's another like little tool that you can use. Um, a lot of times getting, getting another person, if you're close enough to them to laugh with you 
laugh at you, laugh at themselves. You know, I think humor is a great tool. And um, I don't know, but then, but then there's those, you know, I know people are in uh, the deeper family relationships where it's like, you do have to deal with that person often. And what do you do if, you know, they're constantly, you know, bringing these things up. And I ha I had that situation with a, a close family member where I just had to say, I care about you more than I care about this conversation. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I, I, I'm not going to go there. Mm -hmm. And, and, and they kept pressing and pressing and pressing. I'm like, I just had to start repeating it over and over like a mantra. I care about you more than I care about this conversation. And that's kind of why I've made my, my motto relationships over politics, hmm. because, you know, at the end of the day, is it really worth it to burn that bridge or to burn down that relationship, you know, over, over an opinion or a belief, you know, that's what I guess we have to ask ourselves. So I don't know. How, how have you seen that play out in your social circles? Do you have people that disagree? Definitely. Yeah. I can, I can think of a handful of conversations where um, recently just around the holidays where there have been moments of pretty significant um, disagreement. And I, I tend to have the response of just shutting down and wanting to kind of run away from the conversation. Um, and I think, I think I might be moving slightly away from that, but definitely in the past, um, because when it gets into that like debatey zone, I, you know, just being younger and usually talking to older family members, um, I'm just, yeah, I'm thinking about family specifically, not as, not as much in friendships for me, but um, I'm just like, well, you know, they probably know more, they're more experienced, I'm no expert. And so then, yeah, just kind of like shut down. And I don't think that, yeah, I appreciate what you're saying about, um, about valuing the relationship over the issue um, and knowing when to kind of steer away. Um, I don't think that a practice of like peacemaking or peace building in these situations would be, you know, one party feeling silenced and feeling like, you know, they, they like there's no space for them in the conversation because they, for whatever reason. Um, but but I think there, there does need to be a certain level of discernment, especially if you're in a conversation where, or I guess I can only speak from my experience, you know, if I've been in a conversation where I'm feeling a bit unsafe or just feeling like it's, you know, the other person is getting combative and, and there will be no resolution or no sort of dialogue even, not even like we have to agree in the end, um, then then yeah, I, I think there there is probably a healthy way to steer steer the conversation. Um, so yeah, that what, that's what comes to mind when, when you were sharing. And I, and I think it's important, like, especially as a young person to, like you said, not feel like, well, I just have to drop this. Um, so I think, you know, something that, that might be useful again is, is just acknowledging what the person says and then just saying, I, I have a different thought on how that should be approached you know, and, you know, and then of course it's up to that person to, 
to invite you into further conversation and be be an adult about it. I guess. Right. So. <laughs> but yeah, I mean it's 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 not fair if you feel sort of shut out or if one opinion is ruling the room and everyone else who disagrees is just sitting there being quiet. You know, unfortunately, I feel like that's where we put ourselves right now and we do need to climb out of this. Yeah. That's why we need to we just need to talk about it more, you know? It's just it's right. not fair, really. Right, right. It's Yeah, no, absolutely. It yeah, it doesn't feel fair. I I'm wondering like what you think about um navigating conversations where you know our politics are very personal and you know definitely around certain issues where where issues or certain positions are like closely tied to either conviction religious convictions or um moral does it become just and this might be an obvious question probably but i'm curious about your thoughts like it does it just become increasingly difficult as as the as those issues are like closely held like if you know if if um if we're emotionally or morally or religiously attached to an issue does it just become more difficult to um have conversations with somebody who's coming from the other side or a different perspective i mean the, i guess the obvious answer is yes of course um but you just never know what it what it's going to be that might you know put a put a chink in the armor or change someone's mind i remember a really long time ago, you know, holding a certain position about about sexuality in our society and then reading an article in a magazine about some of the science behind um, uh, embryos and hormones that are involved and things that they do. Um, and it was basically explaining why you could have these different um, sexual orientations or different, you know, gender orientations and coming from a biology background, because my first vocation was a nurse, the article, you know, made complete sense to me and it, and it opened my eyes, you know, and I don't know that I'm really answering your question, but I guess what I would say is that people are going to hold their closely held beliefs until, until they're ready or something comes across their path that challenges that belief. Hmm. And we, I think sometimes want to feel like we can control that, you know, certainly during the pandemic, we saw people have differing beliefs and like wanting, doesn't matter what side you're on, wanting to convince the other person that, that their information about vaccinations or masks was wrong. Um, and that your, your information about masks and vaccinations was correct. And and obviously we saw people just dig their heels in and, and it didn't matter what, even what side they were on politically. <laughs> it was really just one of those things that proved that we, we will not change our minds until we're ready to change our minds. Mm-hmm. And nobody, nobody can necessarily give you that information. When, the day that you stumble upon it yourself and something clicks for you, you know, that's the day, like for me, the, the letter from the Birmingham jail. I mean, something clicked in my brain and I started to see something I had never seen before. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's a lot about patience. It's a lot about love and a lot about hope. 
um, and continuing to try to have these conversations and knowing that it's hard and you're going to fail because I do. I mean, I, it's really easy for me to tell you how to have a conversation, but when I'm faced with it and it's someone very close to me, you know, I'm just as challenged as anyone else, you know, reverting back to the old debate and argue or whatever, you know, so patience, love and hope. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Those are, yeah, I, I, I love that. Great virtues to be clinging on to in these types of conversations for sure. Um, so I really appreciate you saying that. And although I'm bummed to hear you say that I can't control another person and what they think, such a bummer. But um, yeah, I think something else that I've heard throughout our conversation this morning is just the need to get curious and how curiosity can truly be a springboard for new and deeper discovery. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that, I don't know, that's a great challenge to me personally. Um, because even as I find myself in this kind of peace and justice work where, you know, we are, we are in the work of bridging, uh, divides and, um, very much wanting, wanting to work with divided communities. Um, I, I find myself, you know, gravitating towards people who see things similarly. Um, and so I think, yeah, just personally, and I'm sure for, for those who are listening, it's such a great and challenging encouragement to, um, to get curious and, you know, with that, be uncomfortable. Um, and to, I don't know, I wonder if you have any suggestions around, um, do you intentionally, um, seek out friends and, uh, I don't know, just potential, potential relate future relationships that, uh, who maybe see things from a different perspective or, I mean, I don't know. Right. Well, I think it's more, more about not shying away from the people that cross your path. You know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure there are like with braver angels ways to intentionally connect with people that hold different political beliefs. So there's, there's ways to be intentional, just like peace catalyst is intentional about bringing Muslims and Christians together. And then there's ways that, like I said, just don't shy away from that person that crosses your path that has different opinions, whether it's someone you're sitting next to in the, you know, the nail salon, having a pedicure, um, and practice that curiosity of asking more questions, doing more listening than more, um, you know, sharing your own thoughts. And I don't know, I just think that anytime we talk to each other as humans, there's, there's always a better chance that we're going to walk away feeling less, um, what would, what is the word, um, triggered by each other mm -hmm. and by each other's beliefs. Um, and like, again, that's why organizations exist that bring people together, whether it's interfaith dialogue or, uh, political interfaith dialogue, uh, that's because there's such great value in it. And it's that moment when we stop talking to each other that 
we start to build a case for being violent with each other, whether it's verbally violent or physically violent. And pretty soon you have, you know, some form of civil war. And that's, I think what we all, we really have to be on guard about right now in our country. We really have to do everything we can, even if it's just being civil to your neighbor. Um, because we don't want we don't want that. That's so unnecessary. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you for that, for that response. Um, I think maybe just as a, a final question for me and then anything else you want to add is very much welcome. Um, so I, I love that you brought up, um, Martin Luther King in this interview because our series is around the beloved community and um, which, you know, that concept is very much rooted in the civil rights movement. Um, so we, we are just talking about how, how we join in this ministry of reconciliation, you know, as, as people of faith, but you know, our listeners are, are all, all types of um, individuals coming from all different theological um religious, political, um, perspectives, but so I guess I'm, I'm wondering, um, from with your work and expertise and with, within the community that you are attached to, how does that, um, how do those words beloved community hit you? Um, and, um, how, how is it that you, that you currently are and that you can like capture people within your community and context and contribute to, to changing the status quo around political division or, um, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing about Martin Luther, um, King Jr. and people like, like him is that they can take a term like beloved community and, and cast a vision and it's, it's a vision really. It's a aspiration and it's an, it's very inspiring as such. And I think really great leaders like him also are able to take that vision and start working a mission around it and actually getting some things done. And he, you know, definitely did that in terms of organizing, uh, teaching people nonviolent protest and just the letters and the teachings and the speeches that he gave. I think, I think it's always good to have a vision and then figure out what, what piece of that mission are you, are you really capable of at this point in your life with your time capacity or the talents that you have, you know, and, and just finding a really a small niche, if that's all you have time for. I remember um, a while back I worked for the global immersion project and we took people across the border to learn about, you know, immigration. And as a peace training organization, one of the, the things that we wanted to do was to help people immerse in their own neighborhoods and figure out where they fit in. So one of my favorite stories, and I'll just end on this note is that, um, one woman, she lived in a, in a fancy condo project in, in California, but from her window across the street, she saw this woman, uh, 
pull up during the day. She was clearly Latina and open her trunk and sell tamales out of the back of her trunk to pass her people passing by. And ordinarily she would have completely ignored that, but having been on an immersion trip, having eaten tamales made by immigrants, having experienced what you, what can happen when you, when you just reach out and make yourself available, she walked across the street, she bought tamales, she met this woman and, and started a friendship. You know, that is, to me, the essence right there of peacemaking. Immerse yourself in, in, in your surroundings, stop ignoring the other. And if that other happens to be a political opposite and you have time to go talk to them about their views on something and find out like, like Benjamin asked me, do you think there's anything we could agree on politically? And we actually found something, Hey, mm-hmm. you know, you've done, you've done your part. You really have. So I think that's the essence of peacemaking. Wow. I love that. I love that final story. Yeah. Seeing the other and not, not shying away from that, from the opportunity. Um, wow. Well, thank you so much, Julie. I know I'm leaving with a lot from this conversation and just, you know, yeah, walking away with if I can keep love, if I can keep hope, and if I can keep patience at the front of my mind um, in in my next conversation, I'll be, that'll be a great start, I think. So thank you so much. That's great, Allie. Thank you so much for having me. That was such an amazing conversation. I feel like I'm learning so much from Julie and all of her practical tips and tools and advice that she gave is just, um, it's so inspiring. And I think it's just, it's especially relevant um, for all of us right now in the context and the moments, um, cultural moment and political moment, social moment that we're all living in. Um, so really, really grateful for her and and the example that she's kind of setting for us um, in, in a very practical way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I just admire how she, how all of this began for her. It, you know, very much began with a relationship, with a friendship. And I think her being open to um, examining kind of a new or yeah, or, or just a different, um, perspective or just being open, I guess, like kind of being, being someone with a posture of who who's willing to be taught, who's like very teachable. I don't know. That's what comes to mind when I think about like what set her off on this path. Um, and yeah, so I've also kind of been reflecting on the the tools that she recommends and also just the wanting to kind of emulate the posture that she carried which was just kind of like a a general openness which is I I feel like something that we talk about a lot on this podcast is like Mm -hmm. a posture of you know being yeah of willingness openness humility um so it might sound like we're kind of or I'm kind of a broken record with that but yeah definitely stands out yeah totally I think that's such a good point. And I think, you know, I love what she kind of was encouraging us to do, which is like this idea of practicing curiosity and 
and staying curious. And I think like you're saying, that kind of does put you in a position then to learn um, something different or something new that maybe you, yeah, weren't, maybe weren't or wouldn't be open to if you're just kind of thinking of like, wait, how am I going to respond or argue my point in this conversation? Or how am I going to make sure that like, I get my point across. But if we stay curious and we're willing to learn from those who are different from us, then um, yeah, I think we really can foster relationships with people who do think and believe differently from us. And in a way that's not going to bring division when we disagree because we've taken the time to sort of, yeah, work on the relationship and also find maybe some shared values like Julie mentioned um with people who have different ideas about how to like achieve those values but that still at the, at the end of the day like have a similar um yeah like heart or desire for for issues in our world today yeah listening for the values i think that's such a practical piece of advice um, that is definitely difficult in the moment because I think our, we automatically turn to, um, what am I going to say back as a retort? Or, um, I think we're already like, or I guess I shouldn't say we, I should just speak for myself here and say, I'm usually thinking about, you know, what's the argument that I'm going to fire back. Um, but Mm -hmm. to actually take a step back and to really try to listen to what, they are communicating and not even just the words that they're saying, but like what's fueling or motivating the words that they're saying? Like, what are those values that are informing the the thoughts and the um, beliefs that they hold ultimately? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, man, what a, what a practical yet challenging uh, encouragement from Julie. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's definitely, I appreciate how she's also like, it's okay to like take a step back and like breathe, you know, and maybe you can't, maybe you can't always engage in every conversation. And I think that's okay too. It's important to respect like our boundaries and, you know, if we're getting triggered by something, like it's okay to take a step back. But at the end of the day, I do think, yeah, there's something really important about what she's saying. And, um, I especially loved like what she was saying about not shying away from someone who has a different opinion from you. Cause I do think Mm -hmm. that's can be the tendency and, and going off of that too, cause I know she mentioned like, Oh, someone that's like sitting next to you in the nail salon, you know, or like someone at a coffee shop, like maybe you overhear something. Um, and to not just move to towards like judgment or like criticism, which can ultimately lead to like dehumanizing someone. Right. Um, but right. being willing to like pra- practice that curiosity in that moment. And um, yeah. And I like what she was saying about like asking more questions, like doing more listening, going deeper, mm-hmm. trying to get to the bottom, like you're saying, like understanding what is behind um, what someone's sharing, like what they think about something, you know, what is the underlying value or what is the underlying, um, yeah, like passion point for them or whatever it may be, um, being willing to 
to be curious and ask them why and ask them how they came to think that way. And, um, Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's so beautiful because then you might get to hear someone's story, which there may be points of connection that you didn't realize and um, you could actually right. build a friendship or relationship with someone. So, right. Yeah. Right. That's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking about or applying what she said to face to face interactions, or at least I feel like that's how I've how I've interpreted what we're talking about. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts on like when we are not face to face with someone. Uh, she spoke about media and tech and how, you know, in the early 2000s and today, media and, um, you know, the internet and social media specifically has really shaped conversations that we have and divisiveness and polarization. And that's not, um, I don't think that's something that's really debated. I think it's just kind of an accepted truth these days. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious how, like what that's looked like for you. Do you fall for it at all? Like, is it easier to kind of, um, to almost dehumanize might be too strong a word, but to, to forget the humanity of someone that you're speaking to, um, over some sort of social media platform or you're engaging with their content and you're not actually seeing them. Like, is it, I don't know, is there, do you see, do you see it being more challenging, um, to kind of, yeah, apply Julie's practical tools to that context or, um, is it, I don't know. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think that's such an important, yeah, concept because obviously most of our fiery like interactions do take place online and not actually in person. It's usually mm-hmm. um, cause I think in person we're more willing to become well, I think on the one hand, we're more willing to listen in person, um, but we might also be more willing to be passive and not be as direct, for example, on social media about what we think about right. something. Um, and social media is a platform for activism, advocacy, like sharing what you think, like that is a reality. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's just it's crazy because I don't want to say that, yeah, this is all social media's fault. Like that there's like division or like conflict or that, that these sort of relational dynamics wouldn't exist without social media, but they might look, they might look different. Um, But yeah, I do think there's something to how we communicate on social media. And if that is the best place to share all of our thoughts about everything or, you know, in such a direct way, or if it's better to try to pursue those conversations only, you know, over Zoom or in person. Um, Yeah, it's hard. It is. It sure is. I feel like it definitely requires a certain level of discernment and across all contexts, not just engaging over the internet or social media, but just discernment, knowing when to, when to engage and how to engage with a 
person who is of a different political opinion. Um, yeah, it just, it requires practice, I think, too. Yeah, that's so true. It definitely requires, yeah. And I think, honestly, I think a lot of my friends, at least that I'm talking to, are really tired of social media. They're tired of um, all these different dynamics of virtue signaling and posturing and making sure you're always saying the right thing, you know, and like cancel culture. And um, not that I do believe that there's power in social media activism and advocacy, but that's not the full picture of what it looks like to engage in, you know, peace building or social justice or whatever, like issues that people are passionate about, you know? Um, And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of like disillusionment with social media as a platform for engaging in conversations like this. And how can we like maybe come back to a place of relational um, development on various topics affecting us. I don't know if you're seeing that too, but yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And I, I echo the fatigue of what social media looks like today. Um, and proper etiquette and yeah, just, I feel like there's just so much distrust in general. Um, knowing, yeah, trying to figure out whether you can even trust what somebody is saying and like stating that they believe, or do you actually think this way? Like, I don't know. Are you just, is this more performative? Um, and so, yeah. So I think reflecting back on our conversation with Julie, um, perhaps it is from those close friendships, like her friendship with her neighbor, Um, I mean, I don't think we can only build understanding and connection with people that we're close with, but I do think that if there's not a certain level of trust or familiarity, it maybe just complicates a bit. Yeah, that's so true. I think it's like, yeah, it's really hard if you don't already have a relationship with someone and you're just seeing what they post on social media. Um, yeah, that definitely does not. I don't think that tills the soil for fruitful relationship. Um, So maybe a part of it and maybe part of that practicing curiosity could be reaching out to someone privately and saying, Hey, I saw you posted this. Wanted to ask you more about that. Could we maybe talk sometime? You know, like I'd love, I'm just curious to learn more about like how you came to think that, or um, if you'd be willing to, I like what Julie said too, like asking permission, like, okay, would you like to, would you like for me, or would you be willing to hear me share what I think now? And yeah, like engaging in dialogue that way, which I think could work. I mean, I think there's something to a genuine outreach of coming in the name of peace and wanting to understand more, you know? Um, So yeah, I think there's something to that. And not being, what, something that she also said, not being scared to engage um, because it's just so easy to scroll away. And even in face-to-face interactions to shut down um, or to fight back. But, But yeah, not to be afraid to 
engage in a way that's probably a bit harder, um, but will lead to much richer outcomes, ultimately. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peacebuilding work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org.